Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Are your parts broken? Are your emotions leaking out? Are you full of hysteria? Hide in the closet when the doctor comes around. Because Lydia Pinkham can fix you right up. The end. Let's talk about Lydia Pinkham. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1873, Queen Victoria's Alexander Palace opened and then burned down 16 days later. Susan B. Anthony was fined $100 for voting. Prince Edward Island joined Canada as the seventh province. San Francisco's first cable car service began. Field and Stream magazine is first published, and P.T. Barton's Greatest Show on Earth debuts. Novelist and performer Colette is born, Napoleon Bonaparte dies, and the Panic of 1873 begat a depression which begat the creation of the Lydia Pinkham Medicine Company, and an innovative marketer and businesswoman gets her professional start. Lydia Estes was born February 9, 1819 in Lynn, Massachusetts. She was the 10th of 12 children of William and Rebecca Estes. Papa, who was known by all as Billy, had been a shoemaker, that is to say a cord wainer, which just sounds fancier, but he had very shrewdly parlayed some land he owned into a salt works during the War of 1812 and had basically raked it in. So, by the time Lydia came along, let's call Papa a gentleman farmer. More gentleman than farmer, honestly, as he kept making these really great real estate investments. He seemed to have some intuition. Where's development going to go? Good job, Papa. The Estes were Quakers. I know you all think of the black coat of the Quaker Oats man, and you think super conservative, but au contraire. Quakers were extremely radical for their day. Women were equal to men in church, for example, and they believed good works are kind of your passport in, even though there seems to be this radical spectrum in Quakers from conservative to liberal, they were still hippies to the average church-going Protestant of the time. And the Estes family, they were extremely liberal within the confines of the Quaker church. Because when the local official friends chapter, that's like a Quaker meeting, that's the Mm -hmm. the congregation, um, when their local would not come out roaring about anti-slavery and become full-on open abolitionists, the family broke away and joined a splinter group called the Come Outers. It was sort of like a universalist church. It's a group that they gravitated towards because... They were indeed very vocal abolitionists at this point. One of their neighbors was Frederick Douglass. He was a good family friend. And already the children were being brought up as crusaders for assorted causes. Lydia's oldest sister, Guglielma, that's a name you don't hear too much (laughs) of. Oh, too bad it didn't make it to our modern day. Well, she was once famously called out for taking a walk alone with Frederick Douglass. Eager tattletales of the neighborhood could not wait to knock on that door and tattletale to her parents, to which her parents are like, is there more to this story? And Guglielma herself, a young woman of the 1830s, got in the complainer's face and said, how many colored people do you know? How many colored people are you friends with? And when he had to admit that the answer is none, she turned her back on him and walked away. That's what we're talking about. Atta girl. The house was the meeting place for radicals of all stripes. Temperance, abolition, women's rights, those all seem to go together. Mm-hmm. Spiritualists, philosophers, vegetarians, super suspect, homeopaths, all kinds of discussion was encouraged in the house and the children were welcome to listen and participate. This was not 
your typical children should be seen and not heard household. No, not at all. And women were also participated as equals with men in conversations like this. So it was just one big, happy activist party I think at Estee's house. Yeah, the whole house was like a salon, you know, yeah. the, where you just meet and discuss the issues of the day. I love that. I do, too. Now, she did go to school. Um, like a lot of kids that of that era, they were educated a little bit at home. But um, she then attended a school that was based on the principles of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Basically, the premise of this elementary school was respect the child. Children are natural scientists. Everybody wants to learn. Let them explore in their own way, which sounds like my child's Montessori school. It totally sounds like your child's Montessori school. So I approve this message. No worksheets, no homework. Are you jealous? Is anyone jealous? I'm going to say it again. No homework. Ah, no spelling tic-tac-toe. The kid learns the list on the first day, but he has to do three of a series of nine games with the words. Write the word in a funny font. (laughs) Make a shape out of the word. I mean, I can see how that would be a learning method, but the kid learns them the first day just by looking at them. So why does he have to do it? Because he gets points for it. Doesn't do it, they get taken off. So I don't think there's any yeah. points. I'll have to ask. Yeah, I do. I do envy the that part. Of oh, it. there's going to be the hammer coming down in seventh grade, though. So you can laugh at me then. No, I won't. Because my son will be like, "Wait, what is it? <laughs> what do we have to do?" Afterwards, she attended the Lynn Academy. Exclusive. Yes, in Lynn, Massachusetts. Now, Lynn, just so you can geographically place it, is on the north shore of Boston. While she was a student there, Lydia became one of the charter members of the Lynn Female Anti-Slavery Society. The president of that society was Lucretia Mott, who we talk about in a previous episode, um, the Elizabeth Cady Stanton episode. She is a big deal in the suffrage movement. Now, Lydia wanted to be a teacher. She had taught Frederick Douglass's wife how to read. What a claim to fame that is. is So she went into teaching. You know, I'm not sure when she taught how radical her methodology was, given her her (laughs) elementary education, but she did a great job with her own children, as you'll see. But she was elected to be the secretary of the Freeman's Institute, which sponsored lectures and worked toward the elimination of slavery. And I just want to read you a sentence from their charter. No person shall be excluded from full participation on account of sex, complexion, or religious or political opinions. This is 1842. This is a 100 years ahead of their time. Over a 100 years ahead of their time. It's still an organization today with that same motto. I think it's important to note this part of her background, given what her claim to fame is. But that's, of course, what happens later. So let's take the familiar detour into domesticity. Lydia was tall, redheaded, smart, politically active. She attracted the attention of Isaac Pinkham, a widower with a small daughter. She met him at the Freeman's Institute. So you know that philosophically, they had a lot in common. Um, theirs was a whirlwind courtship. Now, I approve of whirlwind courtships, having had one myself. And it was noted that he was a formal dresser, nice enough, and short. Such praise. His attractions for Lydia, I don't know what they were, but they were married mere months after they met. I have a similar story to that. (laughs) Well, he had a daughter from his first marriage, so maybe it was one of those situations when he needed a mom to help raise his daughter, and there she was. I don't like that motivation. Well, it's not contemporary, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, Papa gave them a house, and you know how we sometimes marry people who remind us of our fathers? Well, that's what Lydia did, but unfortunately, she got the real estate speculator part without the successful part. 
You know how the photocopy is not as good as the original? Yes. Isaac Pinkham had a dream, a series of dreams, all including get-rich-quick schemes, building, being a kerosene dealer, a produce wholesaler, farming, real estate, one after another. No, no, no. The fortunes of the family spiraled gently but firmly in a downward direction from this point on. Uh, their sons were born just about a year after they were married. The first was Charles. Charles was followed by Daniel 1 and Daniel 2. The first Daniel died as a baby, but I guess they really liked the name. He died of cholera infantum, which doesn't exist by name anymore, but is thought to be a salmonella infection. But she gave her the next baby born right after his brother's death the same name that happened to Vincent Van Gogh, too, and it did not end up as well as this. <laughs> this particular Daniel, Daniel 2, at least... Was healthy enough emotionally. Right. <laughs> um, they had another son, William, and a daughter, Araline, which is another name that hasn't made it Mm-mm. to our modern times. So four children and an income that could best be described as zigzag. When Isaac was up, he was up. They'd move houses and buy stuff. When he was down, he was down. They'd move houses and sell stuff. <laughs> uh, easy for me to say, but all that moving and all that uncertainty must have been pretty stressful, but the thing I keep reading about Lydia Pinkham is how everyone was impressed by her calmness. Placidity is the word I keep saying. Like, she just accepted the circumstances and made do with what she had. No sense worrying, and it takes a lifetime for people to achieve the level of zen that she seems to just have had already. I wonder if that was her upbringing. Life is going to throw stuff at you. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Lydia mostly made do with no servants, similar to myself and got quite the reputation as a local healer. Herbalists and homeopaths have a long history, of course. Ladies of the Manor in Tudor times were responsible for estate health care. We talked about that during the Tudor Life podcast. But that tradition goes even further back than that. We also talked about the horrible quackery that passed as official doctrine. Cockamamie things like the powdered skull of a man killed in battle. That's one even the doctors of the 1830s could dismiss, but... Powdered mummies? Yeah, they, that was legitimate. <laughs> Bleeding? Emetics to make you vomit? Calomel, which was given for everything and loaded with mercury, you'd be lucky if your teeth didn't fall out. Half the time, you'd be better dragging yourself out of bed the second you hear the carriage wheels and hide in the wardrobe when the guy came instead of letting him get hold of you and then anything he leaves for you to take, bury it in the freaking garden in a sealed container. That's if you could afford him, because a lot of people couldn't even afford to have that quack come to their house. Probably better off. You know how much training a doctor had to have at this time before he could get the business cards made? Well, it depends, and none of the news is good here. A lot of, quote, schools sprung up where as long as you could read or write, you were in. You know, go to classes over the winter, and you could be a doctor by spring. <laughs> Sounds shady, right? But even reputable Venerable medical schools only had you go to two terms of five months each, and most of the classes were memorizing terms. It was 100% fully possible to be a legitimate doctor without ever laying your eyes on a sick person. You didn't need to. You had laudanum. (laughs) Um, Or you could avoid school entirely and trot around with an older doctor and learn the medical practices handed down from medieval times. So you would see a lot of sickness, but you were pretty powerless to do much about them. Forget having a baby. Chances are your doctor hadn't had too many opportunities to see the parts in question. There is no doubt in my mind, no doubt, that you'd be better off with a midwife. At the time, the mortality rate of 
the doctors, air quote, was far greater than that of the midwives who had a tradition of cleaning them, you know, washing their hands at least before they, they knew the parts. They're women. They knew what, they knew what was going to happen. Um, it wasn't a surprise and everything was clean and they didn't lose as many babies in infancy as the doctors did. That was really true of all women's complaints, so many of which were lumped under the term hysteria. Well, if you had cramps, the the common cure for severe cramps at this time was to surgically remove the woman's ovaries. You just have cramps. Now, you have this operation, your cramps might stop, but you have a 40% chance of dying. Whoa. Also, it was super embarrassing to ask a male doctor about any of this because they made it so. Putting you down, telling you it's on your head, pointing out... It's a tough old life. Women were just made that way. Big shrug. Hand you some laudanum. Have a nice day. Can I please read you a quote by Dr. Meigs of Philadelphia in the 1850s? Brace yourself for this. Braced. I am proud to say that women prefer to suffer the extremity of danger and pain rather than waive those scruples of delicacy which prevent their maladies from being fully explored. I say it's evidence of a fine morality in our society. <laughs> in other words, he thought it was great that women were willing to die a painful death rather than refer to, you know, parts or gross things. What? Also, if you go to a doctor, a male doctor, your husband's going to come home. What did he see? That is super sus. Your husband will be mad at you if for he, talking to the doctor. But if he saw it, because a lot of times the way that they... It, they did the examination, is up the skirt. They're just feeling around in there. They're not even looking. So what can you possibly determine from that? So no wonder local healers, women, were so popular at this time. Lydia Pinkham grew up in a house where there were always herbs drying and medicines being concocted. Arnica was good for bruises. Still is. Wintergreen helped with indigestion. Still does. Witch hazel's good for the skin, cranberries for the UTI infection, foxglove for heart trouble. Any of that sound familiar? All of these and many more are still widely used and fairly respected. So you hear herbs and you think snake oil, but a lot of those kind of remedies had some positive effects. And anyway, Lydia's mother had 10 surviving children out of 12. Coincidence or not, it gave that family some street cred with regard to the remedies. Lydia's greatest reference book when it came to medicine was The American Dispensatory by Dr. John King. He was a botanist, legitimately, and this book was a pretty complete record of American native plants and their uses. He had even gone to the extent of visiting some Indian tribes and investigating what they used, etc. So it was very complete with drawings, methods of preparation, like 1,000 Magical Herbs and Fungi by Phyllidas Bohr in Harry Potter. It was the <laughs> compendium of knowledge about plants. She made lots of different remedies. Of course, no healer worth her salt would be without cough medicine for the children or mustard plasters when they didn't feel so good. When they wanted to catch up with the friends. Uh, oh. I actually have a mustard plaster box. I should um, take a picture of it and put it in the show notes. You should. I have a, it's a little tin box, and it says on the back something like, um, for children and women and other delicate people, be sure to place a piece of muslin between the plaster and the skin. Like, I have muslin <laughs> laying around. The assumptions on the back of the well, I package are interesting to me. Back then, you might have. Well, no, you totally you would. it off your... Your, your skirt? skirt? I don't know. You would have had fabric because you made, you, you know, you made a lot of your own clothes. I know, but I just thought that was a very interesting direction. I, I, so, yeah, I'm going to take a picture of that. 
But um, Ms. Pinkham was the most famous in her neighborhood for her, quote, female tonic. There's five herbs. I'll just, you know, list them. Unicorn root, pleurisy root, life root, black cohosh, and fenugreek, and 18% alcohol. Yes, ma'am. Just to kind of put it in perspective with other cocktails that you might be sipping maybe now, it's more than a glass of wine, less than a bourbon. There you go. That's where it falls in the... (laughs) alcohol scale. Although, in Miss Pinkham's defense, you're not going to be sitting down in front of the TV with a bottle of this and gulg it down. Maybe like in a little sherry glass, sipping it. No, I, I heard it wasn't very good tasting. Yeah, yikes. Okay. What did it purport to treat? Um, basically, all female weaknesses of the generative organs, irregular menstruation, um, bleeding, pain, all pretty legitimate based on what I know about these herbs and what they're still used for, it also purported to treat prolapsed uterus, which is like no liquid on earth is going to help you here. So that was like a little bit sus. But ladies would drop back by special, I mean, tears in their eyes to thank her and tell her all about what had been wrong, how much it had helped them. They told their friends who told their friends, this woman over in Lynn can help you, was the word. And they're beating a path to her door. Oh, yeah, she'd gladly hand over a bottle. But if she didn't know you and, you know, you looked prosperous enough, she might charge you a little something. No big deal. But if you're, like, down the road, here you go, man. No problem. You're a neighbor. It's, it's Here it is. But she kept a notebook of people she was following the progress of her cases. She called them, like, a whole scrapbook That's full of medical knowledge. Indicator of how meticulous she is about. If she's that way about just things that she's passing out, she, how is she about keeping the recipes? Pretty meticulous. Well, honestly, she and other women like her were as much doctors as anyone else, as far as I'm concerned. Their options at the time were very scary. Uh, baby medicine alone, there was there were some that were 45% alcohol and opium. I, that would quiet a colicky baby, I think. There was Bayer's heroin, which was a non-addictive substitute for morphine that was used as a cough medicine. So I guess if you're coughing, just pass out. That might work. Um, cocaine tablets were sold to stage actors and singers, but it was supposed to give you a smooth voice. Okay. Back to Mr. Pinkham and his dreams of glory. Family finances dipped so low that the oldest son, Charles, had to leave school to help the family. Sort of a bitter pill, what with Lydia's father's wealth and position when Lydia's papa died, of course, there was some money, but there were lots of siblings to share with. And Isaac took Lydia's share and started trying to parlay it into big money. I find this so frustrating. And I'm not even married to him. <laughs> well, I think he might have had an entrepreneurial heart, maybe, if he had a heart or he just was greedy. Number two and number three sons had to kind of turn into peddlers on the side, door-to-door fruit sales and, and whatnot. But Lydia made sure they stayed in school. She tutored them in Latin. When I say that again, she tutored them in Latin. She had this whole notebook full of quotations and conversations slash debate starters to keep them on top of their game. I think dinner times, the evening meal. Are you supper or dinner at your house? We're supper. Oh. Well, we're Sunday dinner because it's in the middle of the afternoon, but we're supper at night. What do you know? Mm-hmm. You're the only Yankee I know that says supper. I'm you- an anomaly. You are. <laughs> You're so special. I thought so. <gasps> Well, one son was second in his class, and the other ended up the valedictorian. So whatever she was doing paid off, even though the family had not had enough money for their school books, and the boys had to borrow books from friends or whatever. I That 
Makes me feel sad. There were a few adventurous years for those middle boys. Off to Missouri. <laughs> here we are. The last place to spend cash money was here in Kansas City for a while, actually. You blow it here because mm-hmm. once you get further, it yeah, doesn't mean a thing. Yeah, right. Um, how hilarious. And t- one to teach in Texas and the other got all grizzly Adams up in New Hampshire. Just tromping around with a big old beard. And there were a few prosperous years for the family. Isaac's property had doubled in value. His investments were paying off. They had the biggest house in town. They had a fountain in front of it and a grand piano inside. It was a lovely, lovely home. For the first time, I think, there were some wants around Mm -hmm. instead of just some needs. All Um, that stuff that they've been saying, well, maybe someday when Dad makes a good investment. Lydia was occupied with the funniest thing. At least I I think it's funny. She organized this whole citywide spelling bee. This reminds me of Laura Ingalls Wilder. That was like the biggest entertainment was to have, I mean... Everyone, this isn't just children. Let's put all the adults in the town up on a stage and we can see how they can spell. Well, she was number one and her future son-in-law was number two, by the way. Hooray! So there's some stories in the family. She set up the game and then she won it. Curious! Hmm. Curious! Well, she also kept writing, kept her writing about women's ailments. It was a big uh, interest for her, obviously. So she had copious notes going on, and she would line them out and outline them. Finally had a little bit of leisure time. She studied phrenology, Beckett. That is one of your favorite things. <laughs> it is. Pseudosciences. <laughs> there might have been servants at this point in this house, I'm guessing, <laughs> as it was big. Yeah. So Dan came home and opened a grocery store and planned to go into politics. Will... This is number three, son. Took the entrance exam and was about to go to Harvard. And then came the financial crisis of 1873. The Panic of 1873 was basically an American and European domino effect. One thing went bad, which caused another thing to go bad, which caused another thing to go bad. And very quickly, both were in a depression. Yeah, banks failed. Industry shut down. People were out of work. Isaac Pinkham's whole operation was a house of cards. Everything was mortgaged. Everyone who owed him money was defaulting. The law literally came to throw him in jail and seize everything. They were only able to keep him out of jail by basically just begging the guy who happened to be a distant cousin or something. (laughs) But it was over. I mean, something in Isaac broke apart right there. Yeah, his house of cards crumbled and so did he emotionally. He He was done. So for the next 15 or so years, he's in this story. You know, he's there. But if we don't talk about him again, it's because he is sitting in his rocking chair by the fire talking to himself. Yeah, he's a semi-invalid from here on out. Of no help. We None at all. She has to take care of him. He broke. I mean, he broke. Totally. So off again they go to a tiny little cottage. Everyone's back together again. Dan's store had, his grocery store had failed during the panic too. And Will's dreams of Harvard were over. That is heartbreaking. Aeroline graduated from high school and became a teacher. All three sons worked in unskilled labor. Everyone was giving their wages back to Lydia to just keep the family afloat. They were having... This is the origin story. It wasn't in a garage like so many because there just weren't garages. <laughs> no. But they were they were having a strategy meeting at the dinner table one afternoon. What to do? What are we going to do? When up comes a carriage full of ladies from Salem. No, it's only five or so miles away. But honestly, that's over an hour of travel time. Yeah, this isn't just people down the street. They heard about her her compound, and they'd come up to get it. She sold them six bottles for five bucks. That's a hundred bucks today. And they paid it. And they're like, oh, yes, no problem. Strangers, you know. Yeah. They're not negotiating with her. They're just, how much? Here. Absolutely. And when she came back in, there was old Dan with this light bulb over his head. Mine's <laughs> well be visible. And now it's time to take a little break. And when we come back... 
we're going to find out what that light bulb was over Dan's head. and her family have had a little confab at the kitchen table, and they've just had a bright idea. She did take some convincing, but once it was on, it was on. Charles and Airline kept working to pay for ingredients. Will and Dan were in charge of sales and marketing, and Lydia made the medicine and wrote the advertising copy for what was now called Lydia Pinkham's Vegetable Compound. She brewed this in her kitchen, but first off, she scrubs everything, because again, she's very meticulous. She knows the importance of cleanliness. Well, so cleverly, they put every single thing in Will's name so that Papa's creditors couldn't get a hold of it, and they couldn't put it in Dan's name because of the grocery store. Right. Um, having failed, and he had some creditors, too. So Will, newborn, into the credit world, all the stuff's in his name. <laughs> so they tried a lot of things. Um, a four-page, quote, guide for women that was explicit for its day. The word uterus, oh, fan myself. Which ended up being too embarrassing of a thing for ladies to pick up at the drugstore and be seen reading. Dan kept saying, you know, I... I see men look it up and like, hey, hey, yeah. <laughs> but women will pick it up, and if you see them, they'll te- they'll like hide it or tear it up. It's not, it's not doing good. <laughs> testimonials were a big deal. They would take testimonials from some women that came and use that in their advertising. Dan and Will set off with flyers, including testimonials, ingredients, etc., to Boston, to Brooklyn, to New York. They went door to door. They advertised in women-only places like dressmakers and church bulletins. I guess they're women-only places. They thought so anyway. I love Daniel's way. One time he left them at the cemetery before Decoration Day. Figuring that women would be the ones yeah. bringing the flowers. Exactly. And well, so there weren't any be any men mm-hmm, to see you pick this mm-hmm. up. But nothing seemed to work. It was a year of the sales barely covering the cost of the printer's ink. Honestly, Dan and Will traveled and starved and never slept. And all but burnt out. And then Will got a crazy idea. It was probably sleep deprivation that made him do this. But he went into the office of the Boston Herald newspaper, and he slapped that four-page guide for women down on the counter, and he goes, how much is it to run this as an ad on the front page of your paper? Using, for one day only, all the money they had to pay the printers. It was like Jack and the Beanstalk. He came home with that news, and everyone put their freaking head on the table and cried. I'm laughing because I had Jack and the Beanstalk written down, too. It was just like that. Like, what did you do? You traded our money Money for what? what? One newspaper ad? No, it didn't look like an ad. It looked like a feature story. But days later, they had giant orders for some wholesalers. One... Luckily, was a pretty famous guy. So-and-so carries it now, so if you don't, well, that looks bad for you. Sales increased exponentially. Dan and Will didn't let up in their efforts. They kind of cast it around for any way to increase sales. Dan was in Brooklyn and wrote home, People seem all torn up for homemade goods here, which made me laugh out loud for real in 1875. Brooklyn was nostalgic for the homemade goods of yore, you guys, in 1875. Have you watched Portlandia? 
I watched a few. I couldn't get into it. I'm sorry. They have, I must not have. I'm not the Marco. <laughs> well, they have this song called The Dream of the 90s is Alive in Portland. And then this follow-up, The Dream of the 1890s is Alive in Portland. I'll put a link. That one I know. So true. Yeah. Even now, and evidently then, the past was so much better than now. So homespun. Homespun. Home-like. Cottagey. A picture of a house, a farm. How are we going to... How are we going to maximize this nostalgia thing that seems to be going on up here in Brooklyn? I can't even get over how funny that is to me. (laughs) What to use? What are we going to use? Dan had the idea that created the tipping point. He persuaded his attractive, dignified mother to pose for the iconic photography that went on the label. Everyone's kind grandmother. That's it. That's all they needed to see was another woman saying, this will help you, I know. And she looks like your grandma. Who wouldn't believe that? Well, this was obviously the early days of advertisement. A yeah. photo of a woman on a label was such a revolutionary thing to do that the sales graph, I mean, it went from like, do, 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 it was like nearly vertical. On the ad copy, Lydia Pinkham was called the savior of her sex. And in all the pamphlets, write to me, write to me at my, at my house, which actually ended up being the factory, but it was her house yeah. first. Yep. She gave advice free, like Betty Crocker, basically. <laughs> Most of it was, hide when you hear the doctor coming, like I said before. Um, she had so many letters, a 100,000 a year, that she had to hire lady, quote, typewriters. Typewriters weren't the machine. They were the ladies that operated them to help her answer the questions. And she had a set answer to, I mean, her FAQs. Yeah. Because people ask the same thing over and over again, but she had to make it individual for each one. Correct. So I love that on each bottle it said, women can sympathize with women. Health of women is the hope of the race. Yes! It is! I mean, she's marketing to women. And she flat out says stuff, too. She doesn't even pull any punches. Mm-mm. Like, there's parts mentioned. There's trouble <laughs> mentioned. I mean... <laughs> I, and the advertising of the day... Now, again, remember, there's other companies that are doing this, so they're all competing for the same medicinal dollar, I guess. There is a advertising strategy, which is called trade cards. Now, we would think of like maybe like a baseball trading card. That same, you know, card stock on the front, there's a hook, which would be like a picture, something that would attract people in. And on the back, there's the pitch. And they would leave these cards out and people would grab them because, oh, look at this pretty card. And the ones that still exist are just beautiful examples of art. They just, we'll put up a couple, obviously, in our show notes, but they're a collector's item. And Lydia's was no no different. At one point, the uh, hook was a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge with Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound written underneath it. Now, if you lived in Brooklyn, you knew that that sign wasn't there. But how many people actually lived in Brooklyn or had seen this, you know, modern marvel that is the Brooklyn Bridge? They're like, oh, my goodness, that's the biggest, fanciest, newest thing in the world. And they have a sign on it. They gave them out for free, and Lydia's card would say something like, it will cure entirely the worst form of female complaints. All ovarian troubles, inflammation, ulceration, falling and displacements of the womb, and consequent spinal weakness, and is particularly adapted to the change of life. We're talking menopause. This one bottle will cover you from puberty through menopause. So, um, also, in addition to those trade cards, ultimately, uh, and I don't think it's this time period, but ultimately, the Lydia Pinkham Company was famous for what they called premiums. So, there's sewing kits. 
These are eminently collectible. If you're ever nosing around a flea market and you see this, snap it up. Snap it. Um, sewing kits, tape measures, cookbooks. I mean, and not just one cookbook, all kinds of cookbooks. And it was, um, I don't know if it was free with purchase exactly. Um, it was with purchase. Okay. Yeah. So they had, you know, like almost like the treat in the bottom of the cereal box. So um, develop a relationship with your customers, and your name is always before them. And it's like, oh, Lydia Pinkham sent me this little sewing kit. I'm going to keep it in my pocket. She I knows women because women need a small sewing kit. Well, the family got an offer for $100,879. That is two and a quarter million of today's dollars for their trademark and their formula only six months after her face went on the labels. And sales were so good, they felt comfortable refusing that offer. That's how much money was rolling in. They moved from the house to a actual manufacturing facility, which they had to expand. Yeah, 100000 no. This isn't Lydia in the kitchen anymore. No. I'm sorry. Although, that's the image, because her face, they're, Dan and Will are getting her into as much... Not just advertising copy. They're putting her face and her name in every single article that they can. They're paying writers to put her name in their pieces so it makes it look like news. Mrs. Lydia Pinkham became a celebrity. After all, she's the only woman with her picture in the paper. Now, there is a rumor, the tradition of thinking, that any time a newspaper editor, especially in a small town, needed a picture of a woman in a story, oh, just pull out Lydia Pinkham's photo and slap it in there, like Queen Victoria or Lily Langtree. But we don't have a photo of her. Now, that's, it didn't happen, but she's so famous that that was yeah, the joke. Yeah. But she was so famous that songs began to be sung in her honor by college wags and comedians. There were jokes and cartoons about her. She, or rather her photo on the bottle, had reached icon status. They say you know you're famous when you're a crossword puzzle clue, but since the first modern crossword won't occur for 30 years, I guess we have to accept that when people are more familiar with you than the Queen of England, that you are pretty darn famous. So, 1881, sales reached $200,000. That's $4 million, you know. Um, the year Lydia Pinkham turned 62. The family was financially secure beyond all cares after six years of back-breaking noses to the grindstone. Can we at least finally enjoy the fruits of our labor? I'm sorry to say no. No, not at all, because it took its toll first on Dan. Uh, a cough developed into tuberculosis, and none of Lydia's cures or a brief relocation to Texas would save him. He died at the age of 32. Two months later, exactly the same thing happens to son Will. By Christmas, he was dead, too. Consumption, which is funny, because, like, one died of tuberculosis and one died of consumption. They're the same thing. I don't know uh-huh. why, <laughs> why they specified whatever. But um, even now, today, tuberculosis is a problem. It's becoming drug-resistant, just so you know. And there's an outbreak 30 miles south of here. How about that for a little gloom and doom? Thanks. <laughs> there was one obituary that called these boys martyrs to business. They had literally worked themselves to death. They did. Honestly, there was not really much herbs could do about it. About 50% yeah. of people died from consumption once they got it. There, there's no herb on earth that's going to really improve their chances. The bacteria that causes that wasn't even recognized until the year after Will died. And there wasn't a vaccine until 30 years later. There's like nothing, there's nothing anyone could have done. Right. Now, the compound was still extremely popular, and Lydia's in grief 
But what she does, she writes two books, Yours for Health and Married Women and Those About to Be. She gave these books away for free. It's how she started her business, and it's what she's going to do at this point in her life. She thought the women of this country must have a physical education if we are to have a people strong and healthy. From the time of her son's death, Lydia held weekly Saturday seances at the house. She so wanted to talk to her sons again. This was the age of spiritualism, by the way. Lydia's not alone. I assure you, she's not alone. The belief, often hand-in-hand, interestingly, with some sort of Christian philosophy, that spirits were not only ready, waiting around, but happy to talk to people from their place of greater wisdom, wherever that was. That's not a really common Christian belief, but probably with the church that she attended, it was probably something that they explored. Well, super fashionable and prevalent in the United States and Britain in the 1880s, right through about the start of World War One, eight million spiritualists in the United States. So it's not so rare. You you actually get it in season one of Mr. Selfridge. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is uh-huh. a famous spiritualist. And did you see how they're all like, ooh, cool and creepy? Nobody was like, this is against my beliefs. It was so fashionable. Yeah. Um, but they probably hadn't explored it as beyond their beliefs. It was probably like, oh, this is cool. This is just it's, yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah. So only one year passed, and then Lydia Pinkham suffered a stroke, which left her paralyzed. And five months later, on May seventeenth, eighteen eighty-three, she died at her home in Lynn, Massachusetts. So that's the end of the story of the woman, Lydia Pinkham. But the story of the product, Lydia Pinkham, lives on. Now, at this point, her son Charles is in charge of. He's in charge of everything. He and Airline are really the only ones that are left. He divided his shares equally with Airline, which he was under no legal obligation to do, by the way. So good for him. Very consistent with how this family operates, though. That's true. Like women have Yeah, women have as much rights as men, and why not? Why wouldn't she? She's been... She's been around for the long haul. Well, so he ran it very paternalistically, like Selfridge's. It's funny. It's like it's almost like he's Papa, but everybody knew him. A lot of people that worked there called him Charlie. It was very, um, like everyone was so excited about what he thought about stuff, and he was the personality that took over after Lydia. Right. I think. Right. Although Lydia's face is still on the bottle. Oh, who wants Charles's face on the bottle? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> And um, Lydia is still answering letters. Hmm. Curious. Curious. Now, um, the company, I have to say, did put out perhaps afterward that, like, well, technically they're still writing to Mrs. Pinkham because Charles's wife is Mrs. Pinkham and she's in charge of the communications department. (laughs) There were Lydia's FAQs anyway. So (laughs) I loved how it was blown. In a magazine, someone went and took a picture of her headstone. This woman's been dead for 20 years. And everybody's like... Okay. We know. That's yeah. fine. That's all right. Because I'm getting married and I need to know. Oh, uh, yeah. There was a whole thing about this time. Speaking of the letters, about a man never sees your letters. Even the mailroom clerks are women. And you still can't see the letters. Really? Yes. Uh, Radcliffe has an extensive collection of the Lydia Pinkham archives. Is, they have them. And the le- there's letters there and they can't, they, they were not digitized. You can't see them if you're a researcher. What if you're a lady? You know what? I don't know. I would say no, because anything I saw, it's like, no, these are not. Because they have people's names on them. HIPAA. <laughs> you can't <I> retroactively <laughs> apply HIPAA. No. Oh. But I admire the philosophy that, like, no, no man's ever going to see them. Yeah. Well, yeah. Still no man. So the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 required labeling of 
several ingredients. Um, you know, cocaine, heroin. So that knocked out Mrs. Winslow's cough syrup and other cocaine-laden, cannabis-laden, heroin-laden products. Now, it did catch Pinkham on the alcohol. Yeah, you had to suddenly put the percentage of alcohol that was in your product on the label. It, and the patent medicine industry fought this as far as they could, and they had quite a sizable power behind them, but they just couldn't. They, it, they it, Eventually, it just collapsed, and there's, nope, sorry, you need to put the, that information on the label. There are certain medicines that only doctors can dole out, dispense. That's just the way it is. Lydia Pinkins was still allowed to say, quote, there's a baby mm-hmm. in every bottle. You know, and that is a phrase that lasted long after that because still to this day, I was reading some um, trying to conceive forums and they recommend Lydia Pinkham's to try it. There's as a way to conceive a child. There's and there all these women there's a baby in every bottle. They're still saying it. They had a tiny bit of trouble during prohibition. The alcohol today, yes, today is down to ten percent. But the women's Christian Temperance Society wholeheartedly endorsed this product. So Medicinal uses, you need it. There's a little bit of alcohol in it as a preservative. They worked around it, so I guess all the women in the temperance society were using it too. It was such a common, yeah, (laughs) such a common medicine. This product spread all over the world, ultimately to 33 countries. It was so common that it really did become a household name, particularly in the South. In fact, I got interested in this topic when I was reading The Help. I don't know if you've ever read it or listened to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a character that at one point... Yeah. Well, this isn't in the movie. Oh, okay. That's the thing. This is only in the book and the audio. I did the audio. I read the the audio book. (laughs) (laughs) One of the characters is having a miscarriage, and another character says, oh, there's some Lydia Pinkham under the sink. Like, that was her first instinct. And also, earlier, the lady was showing just some lackadaisicalness. Oh, let me get you some Lydia Pinkham. The first thing they thought of. Like, we would reach for a glass of water and some Tylenol. They reached for Lydia. Aeroline and her daughter, also named Lydia, Lydia too, endowed and created the Lydia Pinkham Memorial Hospital in 1922. It started out as a free baby and mother clinic. It's still in operation today, but unfortunately is no longer free. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, what is? You know, so the new FDA tested the product. And to its great surprise... And had to walk back a lot of indignation on this deal. Found it an effective uterine medicine and gave it a pass. So there, thinking it was quackery. They even found that some of the herbs involved provided estrogen treatments. Which is probably why the trying to conceive women are still taking it. And it was like 100%. Now, see, yeah. we can't endorse it for that use. No, yeah, no, no, no. That. Yeah, no, and we haven't used it for that. Even the FDA's investigation got a new, I'm not going to sing it, but I'll recite a new verse to the old Lydia Pinkham song, which I'm going to use as the closing music. But um, there's a baby in every bottle, as so the old quotation ran, but the Federal Trade Commission still insists you need a man. <laughs> the littlest thing. And you get a new verse to Lydia Pinkham. I think that's all I have on the official uh, other, you know, when we get... Actually. Oh. Before we get I to... I do the, have something. No, I have something. No, I have something. Well, I have a surprise for you. I have a surprise for you. We both pulled out our Lydia Pinkoms because it is still available on Amazon. We, I purchased mine. Is that where you got yours? Yeah. Yeah. We've been together too long. We think like, only I can't help but notice that mine still has a seal on it and yours does not. Well, did I was going to try it. No. Well, I wanted it ready. Don't open it because you can still return yours. No, I'm going to, uh, I have, I have, um, women's complaints. 
<laughs> okay, so, so I was gonna have, I was gonna do a t- taste test. Um, um, I was too. Gosh, I think we need to take a shot of it. I wait, gonna... no, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. It, I'm, I am smelling the bouquet. <sighs> okay, well, mine has breathed long enough. <laughs> I'm not doing I'm, it. It smells like. I'm, I'll do it. Hold on. Like the inside of a hamster cage. Oh, actually, it's not as it's not as bad as I thought it was gonna be. I swear. I, am I making a face? I am not making a face. You're not, I'm making a face. It's not like sweet, like cough syrup. It's it's, mm. it's bitter, but it's not like what is bad. Wow, our taste buds are totally different. I mean, I'm not gonna put it over ice. I'm not gonna put it over ice and sip it at cocktail hour. But it's not as bad as I thought it was gonna be. And it it they took the black cohosh out at some point in the reformulations, and then apparently they put it back in. There's only two original ingredients in this one. Actually, I noticed that I was marking it. Um, let's see, two ingredients, the black cohosh mm-hmm. and the pleurisy roots back in. Okay, here. Yeah. So those are the two originals, but then I, I wrote down they added the dandelion around the Titanic era, so I'm going to call that a legacy ingredient. Okay. But um, most of the stuff is gone. This isn't that, this isn't the same. As what she used to make. No. Hers had true unicorn root, false unicorn root, life root, black cohosh, pleurisy root, and fenugreek tea. Fenugreek tea. Still recommended for women's complaints. So I'm kind of surprised it's not in here unless it's like prohibitively expensive. Alcohol, which is not in here at all. Oh, yeah. It's 10%. Right there. I told you that earlier. It's 10%. Yeah, you did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was so excited to share my... I know. I even had it hidden behind the monitor. I had it in a bag. Dang it. Well... (laughs) Okay, so honestly, this tastes like, it reminded me of something. There's this liqueur made of artichokes. What? Yeah, exactly. See, you're What's making the call now. And Chinar, C-Y-N-A-R. Okay. Uh, that is Do you have name. any? You have an extensive bar here. No, I have creme de violette, which kind of tastes just as bad as this, actually. But um, I thought you liked creme de violette. I like it with sugar and cream. Oh, okay. Uh, straight out of the bottle. <laughs> yeah. It's like destruction. So that's what that was my first thought. Usually you drink medicines now. There's there's a sweetness to them. There's no sweetness to this. If I was having really bad cramps, I might try it. Well, yes, that's true. And, you know, like Susan said, the reason I even found out this still existed was I searched online, and there are so many message boards. On fertility sites, it sounds like they sound just like the old testimonial mm-hmm. ads. It worked for my friend. I heard of a lady. Hey, this stuff, it's just exactly the same. And this is 2015. Well, so, all right, good. That's, we have pictures of our, of our Lydia Pinkham. Well, my I, surprise. Wah, wah, wah. So, I'm sorry to say that the address that one used to write to, which was actually the factory, 233 Western Avenue in Lynn, is now Ingram Service Center. So you can get your car tuned up, if not your parts. Some parts, car parts. However, 285, (laughs) her house is still there. And it was designated a National Historic Landmark. It was the first to be designated that in Lynn, Massachusetts. It is not open to the public. But it's there with a little placard on the side of it. Part of her old factory is now artist and office space. Well, the National Women's History Museum, nmhwh.org, which is now just online, but you should know that work has begun on a brick-and-mortar museum in Washington, D.C. as of last December. Yay! So nice. About time. Um, They have a great little couple of pages about Luya Pinkham on their website. 
Now, um, as to books, let me tell you, I've got two major ones here. You're Lydia. able to find articles in assorted other things, right. but but Lydia Pinkham biographies are pretty thin on the ground. Female Complaints, Lydia Pinkham and the Business of Women's Medicine by Sarah Stage. And then I have Lydia Pinkham is Her Name, uh, which is a very, very old library book by Jean Burton. This book, this exact book, the one that's in my hand, is the one that they put on Project Gutenberg from the Kansas City Central Library. <laughs> so I'm holding the same book that you're going to be reading if you read it online. It's in my hand right I'll now. take a picture so you can see it. Because <laughs> they don't show the outside of the book online. But. Oh, it's just brown. Yeah. But so, it's brown and old. And then um, there is a, another book that's just come out as of last week. So, of course, we couldn't get our hands on it. Our timing is not perfect. Lydia Pinkham, The Face That Launched a Thousand Ads by Sammy R. Dana. It came out March 27th. Um, so if you can get your hands on that right now, ooh, the hardback is still $70. So I don't know. I, ideally, that would come back down. Maybe at the library. Maybe that's the library price. Why seventy dollars? Well, sixty nine. Is it one of those big coffee table books? I have a book. Um, and it again, this is she just has a part in this book. It's called Shady Ladies by Suzanne Ledbetter, but it has nineteen. It's nineteen surprising and rebellious American women, which is I love reading these books that have. You can read just a little bit about each woman and find one that appeals to you, or you or her story resonates with you, and you can just dive in and go whole hog on her. Now, Lydia Pinkham's papers, which um, I believe include her copy of the Pharmacopoeia, uh, the, the botanist book that she based her formula on, are stored at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, you know, actually Radcliffe, um, digitized recently a whole bunch of those, and we'll provide you a link. It's the Harvard University Open Collections Program, so that's super good. Also, on a more comedic note, The Ballad of Lydia Pinkham, which is traditionally quite off-color because um, it was sung by college men. I'm going to read you just like a minorly off-color one. You're not going to sing it? No. <laughs> uh, you can hear it, though, because I'll provide you a link with two. But this one's the one that's more off-color. Let's sing a song about Charlotte. She found children very dear. She drank three bottles of vegetable compound. Now she has one twice a year. There's also references to Charlotte Harlot, um, getting it every night, blah, blah, blah. Men of Cambridge, your humor. It sounds mean. How many pints did you have to lift to come up with those lyrics? But that song has become kind of a standard, and interestingly, Celtic bands usually play it, which is bizarre, called either Liddy the Pink or Lily the Pink. Um, I've got a video to link to by a group called The Shenanigans on YouTube, and I will put that one up there, too. That has less less off-color lyrics that one could perhaps sing in a public place. So it's suitable for kids. Yes. Okay. Although you might have to explain the references, like Julius Caesar knew how to please her. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> up to you. But um, also uh, on Gutenberg, there's the Treatise on the Diseases of Women by Lydia Pinkham, and also the textbook on the ailments of women. I would be remiss not to recommend the Museum of Menstruation. I have that too because it's always a good day when we can recommend that you go visit the Museum of Menstruation. It's it's m u m dot org, and oh my gosh, the amount of information. It sounds gross, and some of it is, but it's the history of anything that has to do with this part of a woman's life. Oddly cool. <laughs> So I will post that Dream of the 1890s video from Portlandia, which, like I said, has very little to do with the actual subject at hand, but has so much to do with my joy in finding out that Brooklyn has always been thus. 
um, everyone, you know, walking around in Warby Parker glasses with the chicken under their arm, practically. So, hooray for that. It's a little comedy. And then I have got a board on Pinterest. So many labels. You can read all of the ads. You can see the trade cards. The hyperbole. (laughs) Men love peppy girls. Do they? Let's take some Lydia Pinkham. (laughs) I was so tired at work. We'll take some Lydia Pinkham. This whole section is usually things that we find when we fall down our rabbit holes. And one thing that I just said, I wonder what's in the recipe from the Baldwin sisters from the Waltons. I I always wonder what the recipe was. And... I found a couple a couple of them and they were identical. But You're gonna have to tell me what the but, Baldwin sisters. But, but the Baldwin sisters from the Waltons and they manufactured in their home the recipe and they sold it out and they drank it. <laughs> it was it was their thing. But um, as Abe Lincoln says, you can't always believe everything you read on the internet. But here it is. It's got tequila, sugar, water. Orange extract and lemon juice. That's a remedy. That'll cure some of the stuff that ails you. How did they get tequila on Walton's Mountain? That's my question. That's, mm. I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if that was moonshine in the original. You know, uh, I have relatives in Kentucky who often gift me with said jars of moonshine. <laughs> you must be consuming them if they often gift them to you. Uh, it's a traditional souvenir of a trip to Kentucky, and it smells like tequila. Hmm. Here's a slightly more modern, but not really that modern, reference from there. The Walton's house is the Dragonfly Inn on the Gilmore Girls. It's the same set. It is. Why did I never notice that? That wasn't a microphone drop that Susan just said. That was was a pen drop. That was my pen. I was throwing it across the room with one of those moments like, oh, my gosh, I watched the Gilmore Girls when it first came on. But you you started when they came on Netflix, right? Well, yeah, I'm never good at seeing things when they come. Like, I still haven't seen any of Friends. What? None. None of it. That's like your your demographic. No. No. You You were too busy living the Friends life. Well, and plus, doesn't it have a laugh track? I don't like yeah. that. I don't like things with a... So I probably will never see Friends, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, okay. So Lydia Pinkham, by following old traditions of medicine, but combining it with modern frank talk about women's bodies, maybe didn't revolutionize the world of medicine, but what she did do, by honestly addressing the problem, was grant women permission to know, to ask, to demand better treatment, and not to settle for the invalid position society asked of them. And so if that's not revolutionary, I don't know what is. Thanks for listening. Bye. We would like to dedicate this episode to Dr. Johnson and Chris, the voice therapist, who, through modern medicine, were able to bring back my voice and get the podcast back on track. Lydia Pinkham loved the testimonial. We do, too. Tell a friend. Tell a few. Heck, tell the whole world, won't you? Leave us a review on iTunes or get Amy Poehler to listen. Find us in all the places at the History Chicks, except Twitter, where there's an X at the end, and Susan at the keyboard. The closing song, as promised, is the Blue Heel 4 with Lily the Pink. A little bit happy, a little bit sad, 
comedy of pink and her medicinal compound and how it drove her to the bed. Ebenezer set up Julius Caesar, so they put him in a hospital home. Then they gave him medicinal compound. Now he's emperor of Rome. We'll drink a drink a drink to Lydia Pink a pink a pink the savior of the human race. She invented medicinal compound with specifications in every case. Reggie Klinger, the opera singer, to break a glass with.